memories of my grandmother is her always pointing to Jesus as the rock, a place of safety. So appreciate you singing that with us this morning. I'm going to dismiss our children downstairs uh, as they continue uh, to study the Word and uh, be taught and discipled by our loving and faithful volunteers. Good to see everyone this morning. You good? Good. Open your Bibles to Matthew 26, 14 through 25. Matthew 26, 14 to 25. Other than Jesus, who's your favorite person mentioned in the Bible and why? So I know if I said, who's your favorite person, you'd say, Jesus. Of course, Jesus. But other than Jesus, who's your favorite person in the Bible and why? Would it be Peter? Would it be Paul? Maybe Mary, the mother of Jesus? Maybe Deborah. How about David or even Esther? Who would be your favorite character other than Jesus in the Bible mentioned? It's interesting. If you ask a question like that, you'll never get this answer. Judas Iscariot. You'll never get that answer. We first met Judas in Matthew 10. In this list of names of the disciples, Matthew records 11, and then he gets to the end, and he says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's what we're going to be taking a look at today. Last week, we saw a woman come to Jesus and express her devotion to him with such love and affection, an act that he called beautiful. She pours uh, a flask of oil over his head to prepare him for burial. She loses something of great personal value to serve him and his purposes in the world. It was beautiful. A beautiful act. But today, in what we see take place, we see something, anything but that. We see something ugly. We see something bitter. Yet, as we'll see in both of these scenarios, if you place them side by side as a contrast, we'll see something that continues to be woven through these stories. That in the midst of this beauty and ugliness, there's a threat. And that's the sovereign plan of God to save sinners. And it continues, and let's see how the Lord reveals how this morning. Listen to what Matthew records. Then, verse 14, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Now when it was evening, he reclined table with, reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, 
one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. Began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered them, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Men, let's pray. Father, always we need you in this moment. This is your word, your truth that you have revealed to us in Scripture. May we be attentive to it. May your Spirit work in us today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We don't know why He does it. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's this growing frustration that Jesus is not assuming an earthly throne to overthrow Rome. We don't know why. We get some hints, some phraseology. We don't know why, but we are told what happens. Matthew tells us that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, took initiative and he went to the chief priests. Those that we heard in the beginning of this chapter are conspiring to find a way by stealth to kill him. Those that are considering how to get rid of Jesus, Matthew tells us that Judas approaches them. And he says, What will you give me if I hand him over to you? What a shocking question. What will you give me if I hand him over to you? We listen to that question, and it has a way of widening the eyes. Like, wow, whoa. It has a way of getting us to scratch our heads. It has a way to maybe, as we ponder it, cause our heart to skip a beat. And if we think about it more, it may even have a way to cause our blood to boil a little bit. Wait a minute. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, has gone to the chief priests and has asked them, what will you give to me if I hand him over to you? Now, if you remember, you go back a few verses, you'll know that the chief priests, they were considering the timing of how they would kill Jesus. And they're saying, not during the feast. Let's wait till after the feast. That will be the best time. We don't want to cause a riot. We don't want to cause any issues. But Judas, one of the twelve, coming forward is a game changer for this kind of situation. Someone from the inner circle, someone who is near to Jesus, someone close to Jesus, one of his closest friends and associates would enable us to expedite this process 
what an opportunity we have. We got someone on the inside. So as they hear this, the, Matthew tells us that they hear this question and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Not an insignificant amount of money. But again, if you compare and contrast this to what just took place with the woman, it's a fraction. Right? She gave 300 denarii in service to Jesus. A year's worth of wages. Well, 30 pieces of silver would have been 120 denarii. Again, not insignificant, but much less than this woman was willing to give in service to Jesus out of her love for Him. 30 pieces of silver would have been the price of a slave. Judas sells Jesus out for the price of a slave. And as you think about what's taking place, because the text goes on to tell us that from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. That is, 30 pieces of silver was sufficient for Judas. It was enough. It immediately opens up a window into the heart of Judas Iscariot. It tells us what's valuable to him. He's willing to negotiate his relationship with Jesus for something that is more valuable to him in return. He's willing to trade Jesus for something else that he would rather have. And I wonder if this doesn't, at least in some way, open up a window into our own heart. What would we be willing to trade Jesus for? For what would we negotiate our relationship with Him? Could this be a window into our own heart this morning? Because in, at least at its worst, this is what sin is. This is what sin does. It trades, it negotiates the most valuable thing for something else that we find to be more beautiful and enjoyable and satisfactory to us. That's what sin is at its worst. That's what sin does at its worst. It trades or negotiates a relationship with God or Christ with, for something else. And John Calvin says, we see in this moment a mirror of how great is the blindness of wicked desire and how powerfully they fascinate the mind. This is where sinful desire and fascination took Judas. A willingness to negotiate and trade his relationship with Jesus Christ for something else. Even the smallest and subtlest of moments. You may not be Judas, but you may be Judas-ish in the way you treat sin and the things of this world. Some other joy that you might be willing in the smallest of moments to trade for Him. 
Because of this, we're told that from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. It's an interesting word shift there. Right? If you look at verse, uh, the first verse, I'm sorry, yeah, second verse, verse 15, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? That word, deliver him over. It's the same word in verse 16. That moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Why didn't it just say, sought an opportunity to hand him over? It's the same word. And that's the same word in verse 21, 23, 24, and 25. But it's, there's a shift in the language. There's a difference in the translation. Context is telling us how to translate this word, handing him over. The chief priests want to hand him over to be killed. Judas is asking, what if I hand him over? And now Matthew is giving proper language to what is meant by one of his very own disciples handing him over. This is betrayal. Who hands Jesus over makes it what it is. This is one of of his very own disciples handing him over. This is an act of betrayal. Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas, one of Christ's very own disciples, would be expected in this moment upon hearing these predictions that he would die. You would expect one of Jesus' disciples to have Jesus' back, but we understand that Judas actually seeks an opportunity to stab him in the back. Matthew goes on to tell us that the disciples are making preparations for the Passover according to Jesus' instructions. Verse 17 to 19, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He says, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. So here we see the disciples, according to Christ's instructions, preparing to partake of the meal. So Judas is making moves. He's making deals. What seems to be behind Jesus' back. And the disciples come to Jesus and they're seeking direction on how to prepare the Passover. And we see Jesus say something. Because he knows The time. He says, my time has come. He knows what is taking place. And he continues to willfully, voluntarily, submitting to the Father, lay down his life to atone for sin as the true Passover lamb. Jesus knows the time that has come. He understands. You know, in John's Gospel, he'll say often, my time is not yet. But here, he knows, we're hours away, the time has come. And he knows that his journey to the cross will be on the path of betrayal. He knows this. What would seem to be a secret, what would seem to be behind Jesus' back, is actually something that he understands and he knows because he's Jesus. He always knows. So at this point in the evening, 
Jesus and his disciples, including Judas, by the way, have begun eating the Passover meal together. And as they eat, Jesus says something to them that you would perceive to shock them and disturb them. He looks at his disciples, he looks at the twelve, and he tells them what he already knows. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you. Imagine hearing those words as one of the twelve. What? What? Such sorrow overtakes them. They were sorrowful, right? Is that what the text says? And they were very sorrowful. This disturbed them. One of us. You can think back in the narrative where where Jesus begins to tell uh, the disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer and die and be crucified at the hands hands of lawless men. And what does Peter do? He rises up and said, no way, not going to happen. You would expect them to maybe push back a little. Yet again, maybe not, because you remember how Jesus responded. Maybe they're starting to learn their lesson a little bit, that when Jesus says something, you listen and you don't push back. There's no pushback here. As they hear this, you would think they would say, no way, I would never do that. I would never do that. And yet, maybe in some way in this moment, as they understand what Jesus is saying, and there's a lot of confusion and disorientation, the tension is clearly rising. Maybe in the moment, their faith is getting a little shaky. You keep hearing things from Jesus like, I'm going to die really soon. It's all, it's, we're hours away. It may be like Judas in some small, subtle ways. I understand I'm speculating a little, but maybe not given what we know takes place, that they shake a little bit. Maybe they wonder, is it going to be me? Maybe they take Jesus at his word. Is it me, Lord? Is it I? Will I be the one that will betray you? Could you imagine the emotion that they're feeling in this, as they sit reclined in the most intimate of contexts around the Passover meal? Would it be me, Lord? Am I the one that will betray you? In some ways, maybe they just simply want to know. Who is it? Is it me? Who is it? Jesus gives us more detail, gives them. Verse 23, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He doesn't give a name. Surely he's describing some kind of activity that's taking place over the meal. He's doubling down. It's one of you. That's who. One of my very own. One of you that is sitting with me in the most intimate settings, celebrating the most amazing truths that we've been set free from, uh, our, our, uh, from Egypt, who held us captive. One of the most profound and amazing moments in redemptive history, the most meaningful of moments, the most intimate of settings, it's one of you, one who eats with me, one who shares this moment with me, someone who feasts with me behind closed doors. It's one who dips his hand into the bowl, one that is eating with me. You see, when they ate together, It was a moment of fellowship. 
of participation in union with one another. The one who will betray me is the same one who would express and enjoy in this moment intimate fellowship and connection with me. Shocking. Shocking. And in this statement, we see the fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Christ's closest friend in whom he trusted, with whom he ate bread, is against him. He knows it. And he makes it known. How would you respond to that? Think of the people closest to you. If you knew a spouse, a child, a business partner, a dear friend, maybe you've experienced this already. Maybe you already know how you did respond when that took place. How would you respond if you knew that someone very close to you was scheming and planning to stab you in the back. Given all that you've done, given all that you've experienced with them, what would you do in response to that? I know my tendency. One, I'd probably start a fight. Two, I'd try to gain control. My tendency. If I know something, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get in its way. If I know someone's against me, I'm gonna take them on to gain control. So we might expect Jesus justly, fairly, to take this on, to gain control. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? Knowing his betrayal, knowing the most intimate connections that he has and friends, those closest to him, one of them, knowing that Judas was going to do this and was scheming to do so, what does he do? Well, look at what he says. The Son of Man goes as it is written. Blows me away, friend. The Son of Man goes as it is written. Jesus fully knows, and yet he willingly goes. He knows, but he still goes. The Son of Man goes, as it is written. Goes is, uh, is, a, is a phrase that just means going to die. Right? You read in the Old Testament when kings died, they, he went to his father. He, he goes to his father's. Jesus goes. He's going to suffer. and He's going to die on the path of betrayal as it is written. He's going to die. The Son of Man goes. In the midst of this, in the midst of Him knowing, He willingly goes. Because remember, this is all according to plan. It's all according to plan. Remember what Peter preaches? Acts 2.23 This Jesus delivered up, there's that word, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
The Son of Man goes, as it is written. Amen? That's the plan. Judas's wicked betrayal is still under the purview of the sovereign hand of God to bring about His purposes, to carry out His plan to save people from sin. Such a statement from Jesus shows that He, in the face of betrayal, remains loyal to the plan. He's steadfast and 100% committed to the covenant, to the promise that He's made to save His people from their sin. Nothing will come in the way of God's plan to save us. Not even betrayal. He knows. He willingly goes. Because this has been His plan. And so in some ways, He doesn't need to gain control. He's in it. Willingly. Freely. Voluntarily. Laying down his life through the path of painful betrayal, Christ continues to go as it is written. He is 100% committed. He is loyal to the end. And I want you to understand that gives a picture of his nature, the nature of our God. He is loyal. He is committed in love to save us. Even at the greatest possible cost, even at the experience of the most profound relational pain, a.k.a. betrayal, he remains loyal in love to save us from our sins. Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Amen? Amen. He's loyal. He's steadfast. In the face of betrayal, Jesus remains loyal to the plan, loyal to the covenant. Some of you may be in the midst of a life situation, a relationship where you feel alone and you feel abandoned, you feel stabbed in the back, you don't feel loved, you feel betrayed, no one has your back, but here I want you to understand that redemptive history, if we just scale out for a minute, redemptive history reveals a God that is altogether committed to your good in His Son, Jesus Christ. Everyone may abandon you, they may betray you, they may kick you to the curb, but this God revealed most beautifully in Jesus Christ will always be by the side of His people. He will remain loyal to His promises, and He will remain faithful to everything He has designed to bless you with. Do you understand that this morning, friend? He's loyal. He's faithful. Nothing can stand in His way. Christ shows His loyalty to us. His loyalty to His promises. And I think if it does anything, and just for a moment, the betrayal of Jesus is a call to be loyal to Him. It's His loyalty that inspires us to be loyal to Him. It's His loyalty. But Jesus goes on to tell Judas, but woe to that man 
by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. God's sovereign plan is at work, amen? But understand this, God's sovereignty does not in any way, shape, or form remove human responsibility. Did you hear that? Yeah, this is the plan. But Judas is still morally responsible for his sin. Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas did what he wanted to do. He willingly betrayed Jesus for the price of a slave, and he will be judged accordingly. What words? It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Yes, I am willingly laying down my life, and it will be painful. But understand this, that Judas will indeed be punished accordingly. He will suffer just judgment for his sin. This is a warning on each and every one of us to repent of our sin, friends. Do not minimize your sin. Cut it off before it grows. In some way, this grew in Judas. And this is where sin took him. And this, as we understand what Jesus is saying, this is where sin would take him ultimately to his doom. The wages of sin is death. Repent now. If you're struggling with sin in an ultimate sense, if you found yourself rejecting Jesus with your life, or even the small, subtlest ways that maybe no one even knows about, it's hidden. It's safe. My encouragement to you is to cut it off at the curb. Repent. Turn away from it. Don't betray Jesus. Betray your Sin. Kill sin, or sin will be killing you, as John Owen said. I think it was John Owen. Was it John Owen? We have some yeses. Okay, that's good. I got something right. Kill your sin, or sin will be killing you. Betray your sin. Stab it in the back. See it for what it is. It's ugly. And if it grows, it can take a hold of you. And if it's never repented of, and your life is characterized by unrepentant sin, turning away from Jesus, trading Him, negotiating Him for something more that seems more desirable to you, understand this, that God's plan will be carried out. You can't thwart it. And you will be held responsible for your sin. Those who live without repenting of it and turning to Christ. So repent. Repent. This verse, this passage ends, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You've said so. Interesting, right? They all ask, Is it I, Lord? And Judas says, Is it I, Rabbi? Don't miss that distinction. Some of you today see Jesus 
as just a nice moral teacher. To give you a life that's moral and good and upstanding to give you something else. My question is, is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus Lord? The betrayal of Jesus is a call to be loyal to Jesus. This is a sad, disturbing, heavy, uncomfortable passage, but it's also inspiring. We can look at it, especially in contrast with the woman who showed her devotion, willing to be loyal in love and expressing that with sacrifice and pouring this oil on the head of Jesus. We can look at Judas and this woman and we can be inspired betrayal of Jesus is a call to be loyal to Jesus. So be loyal to Him. Turn away from all other loyalties, ultimately. And turn to the One who is loyal to His plan to save and bless you. Unlike Judas, let us be unwilling today to negotiate our relationship with Jesus for personal gain. Unlike Judas, let us be unwilling to minimize the sovereign plan of God by crafting our own at His expense. And unlike Judas, let us be unwilling to live without reference to the judgment of God on our sin. Let's see and behold be blown away by the kind of covenant loyalty that led Jesus down a path of betrayal and as we'll see, uh, uh, infinite suffering, profound suffering that would lead to His atoning death on our behalf. Let's see that loyalty and let's respond to that loyalty in love, in trust, and in obedience. Amen? The betrayal of Jesus is a call to be loyal. Loyal to the one who is most loyal to you. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this sad, heavy, uncomfortable word. Thank you that you know who we are, know what we need, and you have given it to us. We praise you for Jesus, who willingly laid down his life to save us. I pray that if there's anybody here today that has traded or negotiated a relationship with God for something else, that they would be called to repentance and faith in a relationship of love and loyalty, trust and faithfulness, and obedience and blessing. Lord, draw them to yourself. We praise you for Christ. Give us, by your Spirit, the ability to walk faithfully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.